Hi everyone, welcome to Notes to My Legal Self. Today we have an exciting conversation for two reasons. One, we're going to talk about contract. And everyone knows I love contract. That's not a secret. If you think it's a secret, go to my LinkedIn page. You'll see that it's no secret at all. I love contracts. Uh, and two, I'm very passionate about the journeys we make as in-house lawyers and the things we can do um, before, during, and after being the in-house lawyers. And our guest today had made an unlikely journey from big law to in-house and back to big law. Um, I see this trend increasingly, and I really am very interested in it and would like to pursue uh, some conversations there. So this will be a very interesting discussion, and, and I encourage you to participate and ask questions because, as you know, if you ask questions, your, your questions one will be answered, uh, and it will be a more exciting conversation for all of us. Uh, so without further ado, Chris, Welcome to Notes to My Legal Self, and please introduce yourself. Thanks, Olga. It's uh, great to join these. I've watched a few of these, and it's great to uh, uh, finally get a chance to be on one. So I'm Chris. I'm Head of Contract Optimization within Simmons Wavelength, which is part of the international law firm Simmons & Simmons, and I'm based in the UK. So uh, you have had a very rich career, and you, as I just mentioned, have done this unlikely journey. The first part is, I guess, somewhat likely from law firm to in-house. That is a journey that many folks made. I made that journey. But you also returned. So I'm not going to ask you why you left, but tell me more about that return. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about my return to uh, working in a big law firm was that it wasn't planned. Actually, it wasn't part of my um, plan to go back into a law firm. I like you said, I was in-house, uh, two large organizations, and then about three years ago, I made uh, kind of quite a big career decision to join what was then a small consultancy called Wavelength. Um, and Wavelength was uh, described themselves as a legal engineering business. So a combination of uh, different skills like data scientists, process people, technology people, and then lawyers like myself. Um, riding that wave of uh, kind of legal operations, legal design, legal technology, and so on. And that that was something that was really interesting to me, and we can touch on, on why. Um, so I joined that business uh, about uh, almost three years ago, and then about four months after joining Wavelength, Wavelength was acquired by Simmons & Simmons. So it wasn't actually part of my plan to end up back in a law firm. Um, and, and I st still then, and I still to some degree now, s s think of myself as an in-house lawyer. Um, but I uh, ended up back in the law firm. And actually, it's become a really interesting journey that I hadn't planned, uh, but opening up some really interesting conversations and opportunities for me, uh, we'll probably touch on. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of exciting stuff in my career as well have not been planned. Uh, and yet here we are. You mentioned this term that is get thrown a lot of on LinkedIn. And um, I want to I want to maybe put you on a spot and ask you to define legal engineering. What does that mean? Uh, right. So I think it probably means different things to different people. I think uh, I think in our uh, you know, in, in the, the way Wavelength is developed, it's that people that operate at that, uh, the interface of, say, data, technology and, and digital transformation and then law. Um, uh, uh, and, and it tends to be people with uh, an interest with some of all of those things that come together to try and improve the process of how legal services are delivered one way or another. Um, so, 
uh, I think some businesses will see the role slightly differently. Um, often it tends to be people that have had a legal background and perhaps are really interested in technology and process improvement and then transferred out of that. Um, and sometimes it's people that have come more from a technology background um, uh, uh, and then actually just got really interested in the, in the legal sector. So somewhere in your in-house career, you got really interested in this operations of, of legal department part. How, how did that come about? Because I think that's where the journey yeah. you're on has really started. How, think what inspired that? Lots of people that uh, I come across working in legal innovation or legal engineering or whatever you want to call it have probably all got this streak where they see something they've they've worked on a, a on a process or a way of working and they just get frustrated by how it's currently done and think it can be done better and i guess i've always had that streak actually all the way through my career so even way back before i qualified as a paralegal i was you know that person in the legal team trying to think about how we could use excel to improve a process or do something quicker whatever it might be um i think what happened you know when I was in in-house as a lawyer and you're involved in negotiating contracts and doing lots of commercial stuff is you not only do you come with that streak of oh we could do these things better but you get a good insight into what the commercial drivers are in organizations what we spend time on that isn't worth spending time on that string has run all the way through my career um, and and actually it was getting involved in you know the, the endless string of negotiating the same point or um, <laughs> using a contract. It's been explained to me once that every negotiation is different. And I was like, but the contract is the same. Yeah, but yeah. it's been explained to me, but there is slight shades of gray. It sounds like you and I are on the same page that the shades of gray, it's basically the same color. <laughs> well, that's, that's it, isn't it? And I think... It, Lawyers are a funny bunch. You get lots of people that are very protective about how special their contracts they work on are. Um, uh, and actually, that I've, I've seen that in-house and in uh, private practice. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we're living in an age where everyone from all sorts of different angles is just thinking we can do this better, we can do contracting better. And people are coming to the contracting problem from different angles. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing that I've, the need that I've seen from my experience in-house, but now working with clients um, in Simmons, is that you know content and getting content right of contracts is one of the big needs, um, alongside technology and design and all these other things that you see talked about a lot. Before we talk about contracts, we yeah. will get to contracts. I promise. Yeah. Uh, I think we both love this too much to ignore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is, I guess, transition unlikely, unplanned transition of to a law firm, uh, what is it? What is it? How does it feel to be back? Any surprises? Uh, I'm just curious. Uh, yeah, that's, well, that's one transition I have done a lot of transition. That's one transition I haven't done yet. So curious how you think about it. No one will be surprised to hear me say that I was probably a bit um, nervous about going back into uh, a law firm. I guess when you make a decision to go in house and you you start working in a different environment and you stop having timesheets and all those sort of things. Um, it can be daunting to go back. Um, I think there's some things that are, that are great about my role. I've got an unusual role. Um, I don't have timesheets. I sit in a bit of the business where you know I, I haven't gone back into a traditional so-called fee earning role as such. So that that gives me a bit more freedom to focus on my interests. Um, uh, I mean, and I, and I, I 
and I'm not just saying this, what's great been great about Simmons is that, you know, they have a reputation for being a nice firm and it's been really borne out for me. You know, I, I haven't come across a partner or a, a lawyer that I've dealt with that hasn't been, you know, genuinely friendly, a <laughs> good, good person to work with. Um, uh, and that, I have to say, has been really nice um, and has made the transition much better. Um, you know, isn't it amazing? People you work with and for make a big difference in our lives. Um, they really make us excited to get up in the morning and show up. Um, very um, interesting. You, um, you touch on a couple of things. One um, is that, you know, and I, you know, law firms seem to be, and I'm cautious about saying that, rethinking two things. One, what it means to work at a law firm, you know, um, and, and, and that seems to be evolving. And the other trends that they seem to be rethinking, which I've been talking to uh, a lot of uh, managing partners for years, you know, they, they've committed that they have a recruiting problem. And I've explained to them the reason they have a recruiting problem is because they have a leaky bucket pro problem. They yeah. train personnel that lives and that has no way of returning. Um, I think if you if you don't only recruit from lateral partners or law schools, that may give you an ability to one recruit and to think of different business models. And I think you sort of embody that. Do you think that law firms are going that direction of kind of changing, rethinking, you know, how they practice law and how they recruit? I think it's probably a slow process, if I'm honest. I agree that there probably is going to be a trend. Uh, of more people going from, say, an in-house environment back into law firms. Uh, um, and that probably happens in two areas. One is where you've got real sector knowledge uh, in highly regulated sectors. Those those types of lawyers, you know, they're, they're, they can make an easier and, and really valuable transition back into external law firms. It's one of these things that there's probably lots of individual examples of people doing things that haven't traditionally been the norm, like me. Whether or not that's a concerted plan that law firms are, uh, are trying to target at the moment probably isn't, but together they're adding up to um, something trend. And I think the, the impact of the pandemic in terms of remote remote working and where people live is going to have a really big impact. You know, I'm someone who doesn't live um I don't live in London and I don't live near one of the offices in Simmons. So, and the impact of that has become much less of an issue over the course of the pandemic. And, and I think it will, uh, you'll see more people wanting to work where they want to work, um, the, the hours they want to work and how that fits into the city law firm model. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's a one, person, one person is exception, a few people is a trend. Yeah, I see yeah. more as a culture shift. So I think that's how it works. So it seems like I see quite a lot of um, shifts and, and trends. So I think we will get there. But let's talk about contracts because contracts are definitely interesting. You know, um, you mentioned a couple of things. You know, you mentioned legal engineering. You mentioned legal innovation. You mentioned legal design. But I know the one thing you care very deeply is content. And content is this word that is kind of used in in many fields, you know, from marketing to whatever, and means all kinds of things. Um, before we kind of, you know, I, I, I want to zero in on why it's important and, you know, let's actually talk about what it is. You know, when you say content in a context of contracts, what does that mean? So 
to me, I think content is at its most basic. It's the words on the page. So if we think about contracts as ultimately being written documents of some form, whether it's online terms and conditions, but especially in business to business contacts, it's still like a written document. It's the word on the page. But then it's beyond that, I think, then to how you present it, the formatting and design uh, and structure of everything that goes into that written contract. It's both the words and the presentation, right? So it's, it's the content and the packaging. Am I am I hearing it right? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, essentially that. I think there's a there's a trend. There's obviously the traditional legal drafters, those who you know, often lawyers who write the words, and then there's this growing trend to see contract designers who focus on perhaps the the the, the formatting, the styling, the structure, and the design of contracts. Um, I think all those things go together, they, and I think of those as the content creators, essentially, um, those that are helping us create the contents, the contract documents that we use day in and day out. And on that spectrum, you'll have some people that focus almost purely on design um, in that sense. Um, and then obviously the traditional people that focus purely on the words. Um, but together, they, they're the people that are focusing on what our contracts actually say. Um, and, and I think that's really important because the, there's so much of the trend of around contract lifecycle management and legal technology and contract technology and all those things that are absolutely right. There's a reason why that's booming because it's a kind of long overdue need. But with the focus, potential focus on technology and process and all those things, um, the, the, the gap I've always seen in the market is to get the most out of your technology or to get or to really optimize your process. And so often, your core content, the starting point of your contract and getting that right is is a massive enabler um, to to making the most of all those things. But it takes time. Um, and increasingly, I think it takes people with a particular focus and skill to try and think about how we can get our content the best it can be. Um, and there's been a bit of a gap, I think, in terms of people talking about that kind of that that need, um, perhaps because it's seen as traditional. You know, when we're talking about oh, drafting contracts, lawyers have done that forever. Um, so people don't. Um, so they think they either think that well, that's what we do. Why why are you talking about it? We've always done it, um, or or they just think it's not a problem um, in terms of their transformation journey, whatever that might be. You sort of describe the drafting as sort of traditional way approach to contract and designing is something that is different, that is more kind of modern practice, and then where they intersect the Venn diagram, where they, they, they occasionally intersect and should intersect more often, is that uh, content plays where it's both. Um, it's, it's, it's actually a very interesting way of, of thinking about it. You know, you seem to suggest it's, that intersection is very important. You know, the, the, the words and design go hand in hand to really get you to your results. Help me understand why you think it's important and what are the practical steps I, as a you know, leader or contract leader or department leader can take to improve that intersection and, and, and get to that goal. I mean, like I say, con contract your contract templates uh, and your, the starting point for your, your transactions, uh, I mean, they're so fundamental, but it's, it's almost so obvious that we forget to think about it. When you're on the receiving end of a contract, it sets a tone. 
we've all received very one-sided terms and conditions and it gets you back up and you know the negotiations can take a long time um, and then you end up negotiating things that just aren't worth negotiating and all that sort of thing and also you just have documents that are difficult to understand and difficult to navigate which is where the design and structure can come in i do think content's about the intersection of design and drafting although i wouldn't just say that the drafting is always traditional i think what's good is that there's much more now even on the what i would say the writing and the drafting of contracts is now more focus on you know plain english simplification standardization all those things that are still just about writing the content but can have a massive difference to the to the whole process um, um, but there's no point you can have the the, the the clearest language in the world but if it's uh, still in a document that is impenetrable difficult to navigate or not in the right structure um, then you're going to have problems as well so uh, I think creating better contracts is all about trying to think about these things in the round um, and it's not just about design and drafting, it's also about process and, and having an understanding of how the contract sits into your process. And some of that is about, might be about document automation, it might be about approval workflows and all those sorts of things and how you can create optional modular content in your contract templates. So, so I'm, I'm perhaps going off on one here, but it's, <laughs> I think the point is there's, there's different things that feed in to getting contract content right. And traditionally lawyers will just think about whether or not it says what it says and whether or not it's perhaps legally compliant, but they won't think about how it's said, how it fits into the wider process, whether it needs to be said really, um, all those things point in to, um, to why I think it's important. The intersection of, 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 of yes, drafting to yes, design and three process. Um, curious to see if you, have any sort of success stories that show folks, you know, sure. finding that intersection and achieving their goals in, in kind of in a more intentional, meaningful way, you know, have yeah. you seen it either as a sort of in-house practitioner or as now um, leader of, 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 of content, con content at a law firm? Uh, do you have any examples that to illustrate uh, the kind of that sweet spot of intersection of, you know, drafting, design and process. One example that was, which I like because it, in a way it was, you can describe it and it will sound quite traditional, but the impact was was massive. So we worked with a cybersecurity business who sold, they had probably about four or five core products, um, uh, but they sold them in different ways via resellers and so on. And um, But the, they were, it was a typical scenario where they had amassed probably about 30 different versions of what was essentially the same type of contract uh, and each one was long each one was in a very traditional format they had lots of micro variations and it ended up in a situation where it was impossible to maintain these templates because it, everything existed in multiple different places they were difficult to create a first draft and they were difficult to negotiate and we went through a process with just starting essentially with a blank page and thinking what is it we need to say and how can we create templates that are easier to manage and easier to negotiate um, so we went through a process of going back to square one thinking about what i call the architecture or the structure of those templates um, breaking it down into modules that would be needed in diff different scenarios and could be used in different scenarios trying to write the content out in plain english working really carefully with the 
client and actually having quite a bit of fun and robust discussions about what we needed to say and what we didn't need to say. Trying to think about writing the templates in a way that could work, say, if they were working with a third party paper, um, using modules that could work with those. And then doing that all in one document that they could they could generate themselves without the need for, for lawyers. Um, and we consolidated all those 30 into one document with different modules in plain English. Um, um, the, the impact was massive because they now don't, th th there's no lawyers involved in generating their first contracts. They just fill in details on a front sheet, they can send it out, they can put together the relevant modules. Um, so their legal spenders all but uh, reduced or, or disappeared for for that act that particular activity, um, and the feedback is that the, these contracts are, are hardly being negotiated apart from just the around the edges on the commercials, um, because we've tried to target terms that can be accepted by counterparties, um, and some of that you might hear that and say well that's just writing contracts we've always written contracts but the process we went through to think really carefully about the structure how we could make them modular to meet their different sales channels and their different products um, uh, to think about balance and how we could make the, the terms um, land well with their customers and then to structure it in a way that is easy for um, their licensing managers to use has, has been transformational how long did the process take well, that's an interesting one because it, it, uh, the reality is it ended up taking probably six to nine months. Um, now we had some versions of it that were ready to go sooner than that, but it was an, it was quite an involved process in the end because, um, I mean, my experience of trying to build up templates from the bottom up is it ends up unearthing in this sort of scenario, when you're writing standard terms and conditions, you've got a lot of issues to cover when you're starting from the bottom up and you're you're trying to challenge your old assumptions. So by the time you're thinking about, okay, well, uh, it's something, something as simple as what do we want our payment terms to be or what, what, what can we get sign off in terms of what our liability positions and indemnity positions should be and all that sort of stuff. And by the time that's got to go to approvals internally to perhaps you know, the finance team, the senior team, the operational team, um, thinking about those things. The reality is that these processes can take longer than people anticipate. But what I would say is that it, it's often very worth doing and actually the reflecting on what you're saying in your contracts and the processes, your internal processes and challenging some of those assumptions and things on the journey is often just as valuable as, as the output. The, so, process, the process of learning is a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the, the thing is, ultimately, the trouble is with contracts is that everyone has opinions about contracts, right? So when you start unearthing and picking picking apart your standard templates, you'll get lots of people that are quite possessive about that bit of language or quite opinionated about whether or not we really need that or stuff. And when you're doing this sort of work in large organizations, the reality is that, that you are often opening a can of worms. Um, so th that's, uh, but that's not a reason not to do it. It's often it is a reason to do it. Um, but I, to do it well, I, I would just caution against, you, you do often find people that will say, can you just give us a new template? And then they want it to be short, plain English, modular, designed, all those sorts of things. But they're used to perhaps going to a law firm and saying, 
oh, you've probably got a precedent for this, just tweak it and send it over. But I think in the new world of contract lifecycle management being something where it's embedded into your process, it reflects your approval and governance processes. It's hopefully, you know, or it might be being built into automation platform and things. That old world of just tweaking something and sending it out doesn't really work anymore. And that's what, but that's the value of, I think, being able to think in the round about how we optimize our contracts for all these things. Having gone through six, nine months of this um, important learning, tweaking process, um, what have been the outcomes um, that that made it worthwhile? Yeah, so, I mean, it's notoriously difficult often to provide hard data on the impact of these things, probably because well, in lots of businesses, they don't have the data to start with. So making a making a comparison is hard. Um, although in that in that example, I mean, I know, for instance, that they used to be they used to use a team of external lawyers to um, to update, generate contracts, and write their first contracts and then negotiate them. They now no longer do that, and they will only go to external lawyers on the rare occasion that something comes up. Um, so. Well, so that kind of bucket of their legal spend has, has essentially just evaporated. Um, and then, you know, the anecdotal data about negotiation is that there's hardly any, there's very little negotiation now. So their speed to contract is down. Um, so whilst it's hard for me to give you hard data on that, it, it's, a, it's a massive difference. And then you, then you think about, it used to be the case uh, that you, there would be requests, you know, something would come up in a negotiation or uh, and change would need to be made. Um, uh, and it was like, oh, can we, can we make that change to our templates? But they had 30 different templates and they'd all ended up into micro, micro variations. So even just maintaining these things was difficult, knowing what was in, in any particular contract. Now, almost exclusively, every point is only made once in their standard core um, uh, set of templates. So if you want to change something or you, you want to do a, a quarterly or annual review of your, your terminal conditions, it only needs to be done in one place and you've got version control and all these things. So ultimately, it enables self-service. Um, one of the interesting things about that business is that it's, it's a relatively, relatively small business, so it's a bit different to operating in it with a global bank. But in some ways, that's why the power of it was even more pronounced, because they, they cut out their legal spend and they can self-manage it now. Um, so you said there, you had you had another example. I'm just curious to hear about it as well because this example was so um, inspiring and, and interesting. Have you uh, Do you have any other examples that you could share? Yeah, well, I've, I've been working on one recently and this is kind of just about to go, it's just being launched. So really, <laughs> it's landed really well. It'd be interesting to see what the kind of, the slightly more metric driven output of it will be. But this is this is quite different because it's working with a a massive global organization and and their team, they, they entered into quite a lot of commercial partnerships, um, which because their partnerships tend to be quite mutual. Uh, but the, the, the lawyers that did that team were working with an old template, an old traditional style template that was probably something like I don't know, 75 pages long, very traditional format. Uh, and for those that work with those sorts of agreements, it had the traditional format of a front end and then different schedules in the back. And what they really wanted to do was rethink how that template looked. Uh, and I guess for 
well, there's a few reasons, but two primary drivers. One is so that they could facilitate more self-service internally so the lawyers didn't have to get involved. Because what they found was because they had a traditional style of agreement, whenever they needed to create a new one, uh, in reality, all the things that needed to get put into the contract at the start were just commercial details that would get, you know, the, the pricing, the exit obligations, who was going to do what around governance meetings and so on, all that was, was needed to get put in the schedules. And they were relying on lawyers to do that because of the format. And what they wanted to do was rethink that and put all these kind of commercial details up front in a way that they then the, the, part, the commercial people that set up and negotiated these partnerships could input those details themselves and almost cut out the lawyer's as much as possible from the for those initial stages and negotiate themselves and then beyond the structure they also just wanted to review for balance and they wanted to review for plain english and it was a really interesting process because we took a traditional style agreement and we just turned it on its head now it's quite common these days to have a contract front sheet where you put in a few details like parties and price and start date but this went beyond that because we were taking all those details in what is quite a long form agreement that you traditionally have in all the schedules at the back and taking those and putting them into um, what we called a partnership plan at the front um, and trying to structure that in a way that uh, with guidance notes throughout um, uh, so that the commercial partnerships team could fill in those details in a way that was more intuitive for them um, so that when it got to the lawyers, it was almost done. And then, we, and then we did a few other things, which was to structure all the terms and conditions. And rather than talking about the front end of the contract and the schedules, which is what lots of lawyers will be used to seeing, we actually just looked at what the different topics that were covered in the, um, in the terms and conditions as a whole and broke them down into what we called parts. So you'd have a part that would deal with data protection and a part that would deal with intellectual property and marketing and so on. Um, and that sort of thing on its face just sounds, well, what's interesting about that? But it, it, it's something that meant that the agreement felt much more intuitive to the non-lawyers non or those that aren't used to dealing with traditional legal contracts. They would look at that and go, hmm, yeah, that makes sense. I can, I can follow what is where and why it's there. When the, when the lawyers who were used to dealing with you know, the front end and the schedules, and it, they found it a bit uh, harder at first because they'd look at it and go, well, why are you talking to me about parts? Where, where's the data protection schedule and so on? Um, but ultimately, the, the aim is that we've got things that are organized by what are much more intuitive topic areas that can then be can maintained by the relevant um, uh, lawyers going forward and hopefully lands much more easily with the counterparties that often might not have legal representation initially because they're smaller uh, and you can generate self-service. So I don't, know, um, I don't know if that kind of makes sense. Um, but so if you, if, you know, so if you, I don't know if you have like sort of the top one or two or three tips for um, anyone who is trying to sort of find that sweet spot and intersection of, of you know, drafting and, and design and automation, you know, slash tech. Uh, do you, what do you think, you know, kind of, you know, the one or two or three top tips that you would have for that person? Sure. I think I think one of the most important things with creating new contract templates uh, and these type of optimization projects generally is get the right people involved. And I think that 
often involves two groups. One, one is users. So who actually uses these contracts, especially if you're trying to cut legal resource out of the process. And typically that's going to be people in sales teams or procurement teams, or, uh, uh, if you're talking about you know, day-to-day commercial contracts. Trying to get th- them involved because they will often tell you what their biggest pain points are and you'll get more useful information about what's going on on the ground. So involve users, but also quickly decide and identify who your decision makers are. Because as I mentioned earlier, the problem, one of the difficulties with creating new contracts is that it can unearth loads of decisions that need to be made. Um, and if you end up having to go to lots of people with for sign off and approvals, it, it, it can just drag the process into the mud. So try and create a small core group of decision makers who are empowered to make decisions for you during the process. I think that the other thing about, you know, creating better contracts is I would always start with the structure of your agreements and think about what should go where to make it most usable, especially in terms of process, but also in terms of design. So often that is about creating a front sheet where you can capture easily the variable commercial details and things. Uh, It makes it easier to generate and also easier to use the data later. So think about structure. And I think in terms of creating, you know, plain English, simpler contracts, I would always just encourage people to take a step back and think about what it is that you actually want to say by each point. Because I think the traditional way of drafting and creating contracts is to take an old example or something I've worked on before and tweak it and adapt it and not challenge yourself uh, and others as to why does this need to be here and what is the point I'm actually trying to make? I often find when I find it hard to write something in plain English or adapt some existing language to something that's simpler, it's often because it's muddling ideas um, and there's a lack of clarity as to what point we're actually trying to make in this contract. And and so I think, and it's something that I kind of joke about with the lawyers I work in in Simmons, you know, what, take a step back, what is it you're trying to say and do you need to say it? And if you do need to say it, then think about how you can say it better. Very good. So um, I love that user centricity and then limiting the, the input. Um, I think that's, that's definitely the key um, because at some point you actually need to get to results. Um, Chris, we are coming to the end and um, I think what would be really helpful, you know, you, you're welcome information and you, you know, I love the insights you shared. Um, and I love the insight of focusing on the structure first before you kind of, and, and, and the goal before you go into sort of wording. Um, maybe, you know, if you can leave us with a couple of trends, uh, because this, is, this landscape is changing very quickly and uh, you're kind of on the forefront of it, especially on the content side. What is a couple of trends that we should all keep an eye on as we go um, through our contracts adventure um, as a profession? Sure. Um, I think the importance of content and actually just kind of knowledge management is a trend. Um, I think we've we've seen, I I mean, however many years, the size of in-house legal teams has grown um, uh, and they're almost in, in large organizations, you've almost got, you know, law firms within an organization, uh, but what they haven't necessarily had or focused on is that kind of knowledge lawyer role or, or, or people who are focused on particularly maintaining the, the resources that are available to their lawyers and the contract templates that they use. Um, but we're starting to see that recognized as an issue. And some of that is being driven, I think, by the focus on how can we use contract technology and legal technology and so on. Um, 
people are realizing that actually to get the most out of those things, they actually need to take a step back and think about how we can create better content. Um, so I think that role and that need of actually our core content, contract content is really important, is going to be a trend. And then what that's going to lead to and what we're already starting to see is then going, well, how can we resource this? So um, almost a need to for organizations to see as a value kind of knowledge management as a service um i, I think will be an, an emerging trend um and a trend that i hope that we'll see and we're starting to see green shoots is more it. standardization of contract language um uh, i think that's that's hard i think we're, we're seeing some really exciting things happening now with the one nda project and things but um it, you know the the ultimate you know, dream would be for much better standardization across more industries than, we, than we've seen it. Um, yeah, I think we are definitely in the beginning of that standardization journey. Content as a service is a very interesting. I, I definitely see some of that is going on as well. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for um, for joining us and sharing the wealth of knowledge. If folks want to get in touch with you, LinkedIn is a place to to connect with you. Anywhere else? Uh, LinkedIn, well, I, you can get in touch with me uh, on Simmons. Um, so I'm chris.simkins at simmons-simmons.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter, although it tends to be a bit more of a personal feed, at hum underscore drums. So feel free to connect with me there. So thank you so much for joining. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And thank you very much, listeners and, and the viewers, for joining and uh, participating, asking questions. and. Uh, and uh, enjoying this dialogue. As you know, um, I, this, uh, this LinkedIn Live serves the, uh, the needs and, uh, of in-house lawyers. And if you have any suggestions of folks who may transition, especially in embracing the, the digital transformation journey, definitely give me a suggestion. Chris uh, came as a suggestion. Uh, and along with everyone else who joined me on the show, uh, it's okay to nominate yourself. It's definitely okay to nominate others. Um, I'm very responsive on LinkedIn, including direct messaging and in my posts. So if you have any suggestions, definitely let me know. Again, thank you so much for joining um, and I see you soon and we'll continue our conversations um, next time. Thanks everyone. Bye.